0: Good morning, I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, April 8th. Palomar Health sends supplies to Ukraine. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. One more warm day before cooler weather arrives this weekend. The heat advisory that's been in effect for San Diego County's coastal areas and valleys expires tonight at 6 p.m. The heat is expected to peak today with temperatures in the triple digits in some areas. Cooler weather is in store for the weekend with a chance of rain and even mountain snow early next week. California's actions to address climate change predominantly favor white neighborhoods across the state. That's according to a new study published Thursday by UC San Diego. The study found that Asian and Hispanic communities experience significantly more air pollution and California's environmental regulations as a whole protect white non-Hispanic people the most. After two years, the Ped West crossing in San Isidro has reopened, but only for those coming to the U.S. from Ukraine. Customs and Border Protection says it's making accommodations for humanitarian reasons. As Ukrainians step onto American soil, they're welcomed with a hug from a volunteer. Encinitas resident Maria Fishov is one of those volunteers.
1: I think that's about just people welcoming people to a brighter future. And I think that's wonderful.
0: There are currently over 1,000 Ukrainians waiting at an expanded shelter in Tijuana. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
2: Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news events and happenings, People were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
3: This is Port of Entry.
2: The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again.
0: Amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine, medical support is needed. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us how one local hospital is helping.
4: Escondido's
3: Palomar Health is stepping up to help healthcare workers treat people in Ukraine. Palomar Health is working with the U.S. Embassy to identify which Ukrainian hospitals are operational and in need of medical supplies. They are donating unused inventory to Subi, a San Diego nonprofit that fulfills international medical missions. Nellie Bulkin is helping with the initiative and says they hope to go beyond sending supplies. Her husband is a doctor with Palomar Health and was born in Ukraine.
5: The last phase of our plan is to send out um, a team of physicians.
3: Those looking to contribute to Palomar Health and Subi's mission in Ukraine can donate on Palomar's website under Medical Missions. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News you <music>
0: Protocols are changing at state-run COVID-19 testing sites. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says the move comes as the county is refocusing its pandemic efforts.
1: Those who are looking for COVID tests may notice some changes at state-funded testing sites. There are seven across the county, and one of the busiest is at the University of San Diego's old recycling center in Linda Vista. County officials say that people coming to these locations will be offered a rapid test first, then a PCR lab test. Arion Medina was getting tested Thursday after a recent exposure at school.
2: I think they should keep it free because, I mean, some people need places to get COVID tests and, like, rapid tests. They're so hard to find, so I think this is good for them to have.
1: Despite federal COVID funding running out, county and state officials say they remain committed to providing no-cost testing and vaccinations, but they recognize that many people are getting those services elsewhere. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
0: Sandag employees pulled out their agency credit cards hundreds of times for meals, and taxpayers covered all of it. Investigative reporter Jennifer Bowman has more.
2: A $50 filet mignon, late dinners, and extravagant bills. Auditors already flagged credit card purchases at Sandag, but source found some of the agency's highest-paid staff often held business meetings at upscale dining spots, places like Ray Degato or Donovan Steakhouse, and sometimes other government officials and even lobbyists joined. CEO Hassan Akrata alone charged over $17,000 in just two years. The agency said it's now updating its credit card policies. For KPBS, I'm iNewsource investigative reporter Jennifer Bowman.
0: Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Coming up, the legacy of the late Tejano singer Selena is impacting young and diverse generations, 27 years after her death.
6: And so we're gonna learn about how we can queer not just Selena's music, but the Latinx culture.
0: Selena and the SDSU class, she's inspired. That's next, just after the break.
2: Thank you.
0: Legendary Tejano singer Selena Quintanilla-Perez died 27 years ago. Devoted fans remembered her passing on March 31st. Today, Selena has inspired a class curriculum at San Diego State University. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez tells us more about how her legacy lives on through music and some very diverse younger generations.
5: I heard a song on the radio, and I really fell in love with the song, Como La Flor.
6: Georgette is a drag queen, created by a young man born Jorge Noe Ledesma in a small town just north of Mexico City. Georgette sits at her kitchen table with a powder puff and makeup, preparing to become her alter ego, Selena the Tejano superstar who died tragically but helped a confused 10-year-old Mexican boy live and find his true identity.
5: I had a lot of bullying when I was a kid because of who I am. I feel great and I love what I do. Jorge
6: immigrated to San Diego more than 20 years ago and has since settled into happiness and confidence, he credits to Selena, her songs, and her spirit.
5: She didn't speak Spanish so well when she was in the interview, but always you can see that she was giving her best. And this is my first time having an interview in English, and I'm trying to give my best. So it's, we have something in common with that.
6: The sounds of Selena are now part of a college curriculum. Professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez Pitched the idea for a Selena class to the administration at San Diego State University pre-pandemic. It is now a permanent elective offered in the spring semester. Dr. Nate, as students call him, is a fan and fellow Texan who grew up with a heavy influence from the Tejano singer. He built the class syllabus with 16 weeks of learning modules that use Selena as a bridge to Latino culture, media representation and personal identity. There are field trips for students too. They get to go out into Barrio Logan and they get to see the Selena Mercado for Walk the Block. They get to go to Mujeres Brewhouse for the release of the beer. They get to go see drag shows and they get to conduct an ethnography, write about it, take pictures, videos, sound. An ethnography is the study of people in their own environment, which includes the LGBTQ community. The next two weeks of class are focused on learning that goes boldly down the rainbow road. Selena is a huge inspiration to the queer community. Tons of drag queens will impersonate her. A lot of uh, queer people, such as myself, find meaning in her music. And so we're going to learn about how we can queer not just Selena's music, but the Latinx culture. The term pocha is an important vocabulary word featured in class discussions. A pocha is a person caught between two cultures, not completely able to speak Spanish and not completely comfortable in the English-speaking culture. That was Selena and Karina Bazarte is an SDSU senior who can relate. Karina's Mexican parents thought they helped her by taking her from the barrio and enrolling her in schools with mostly white students.
2: I couldn't find myself, so I'm like, am I like the only one that looks different? Am I the only one that doesn't have long hair or or blue eyes? So like, Selena actually helped me identify who I am now.
6: Natalia Martinez is one of Karina's classmates. She was only three weeks old when Selena was killed.
0: I never really got to have her present but I had her music and I think that's where I was able to create Selena in my head in the sense of, wow, this is like someone who I want to have as my role model.
6: Which brings us back to Georgette and the little boy from a little Mexican town who used to dance around his living room, imagining what he could become someday, listening to the music of Selena.
5: The um, thing that I Learn from her is to be always respectful, kind, and sweet. That's how I do every time I'm on stage.
6: That's a legacy set to music that will never die. M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
0: The South Park consignment shop, Bad Magin Company, has been given the distinction of the best vintage store in the country by the online review site Yelp. It was determined by user reviews and ratings. The shop is a hub for upcycled vintage clothing, niche home goods, and accessories. Tanya McNear is the owner of Bad Magin Company. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview.
3: So you've gotten this distinction on the heels of a pandemic that's been enormously disruptive to small businesses. How did you have to adapt? Well, we did have to do a lot of pivoting. The COVID pandemic was a huge disruptor for us. When it first hit, it was in March of 2020. You know, the first week was really, really scary. I did a lot of crying and then I put my big girl pants on and said, okay, let's make this happen. The first thing that we did was we really turned to our Instagram and we had already built a a pretty decent following and that really was the game changer for us. We turned to our Instagram followers. We started doing a weekly sale, almost like QBC meets Ellen. So I'm a host and I hosted a Thursday night thing every Thursday. and we just went with it and it was very successful. And you know, vintage clothing is an industry that's really seen a boom in recent years. How has the industry changed since you first opened shop? Well, I opened 11 years ago and at the time it was very focused on mid-century 50s and 60s. And that was just my aesthetic. I really liked 50s and 60s looks. And now it's a little more towards even the 90s. So we have, had to incorporate other eras into our mix. And during the pandemic, we noticed very huge shifts in what was selling. We didn't actually sell a lot of clothes during the pandemic. It's very difficult to sell vintage clothing without trying it on. It really is a kind of a thing you want to be in the room with it, you know, touching it, feeling it, putting on your body because vintage clothing fits very differently to, than modern clothing. So we were selling a lot more home goods. We couldn't keep a desk in our store, you know, for the life of me because everyone was working from home and we saw real huge changes in what was selling. It's like you had to have those accent pieces for the Zoom meetings. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or just, you know, a lot of people had blank walls and they wanted something nice to look at when they're at home. Uh, You know, and again, a desk, we couldn't keep desks in the store because they went so fast because everybody needed a desk to work from home or, you know, go to school from home. Can you tell us a a little bit about the behind the scenes of running a vintage shop? How do you actually end up finding these uh, fabulous secondhand pieces that people want? I'm really glad you asked me that question because I have a lot of people that will come into the store and we are not a thrift store. We are a highly curated vintage store and that makes a big difference in the way that we present our product. When I first opened, I relied a lot on estate sales and really going to like garage sales and really spending a lot of time out searching for stuff. Now that I've been around for a while, I tend to get a lot of phone calls from people. Maybe they're downsizing or maybe someone in their family passed away and they're dealing with all the items in the estate. And I prefer that because then I can work directly with the person and it makes it a little easier for me to go through the items in the home or maybe their clothing or whatever it is that they want to sell. I have a team of people that help Me, we have seven people that work at the store. My operations manager will help me clean the item. Maybe it needs a little repair. Then the pricing part goes into it. So there's a lot of steps that make that item happen in the store. And why do you think vintage has such a strong draw for a certain kind of buyer? You touched on this, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think especially with you know climate change, we really need to have a conversation around what we're buying and what we're bringing into our home because new things take that manufacturing. When you're buying something old, one, it's made better, especially things from like the fifties and sixties, they were made so much better. So the quality is a big factor for a lot of people. And then also just having something that was loved before that spark of joy. When somebody buys something that was really loved by another person know, nostalgia is a big factor in vintage people, you know, come in and go, Oh my God, it looks like my grandma. You know, this is all the things I had in my mom's house. So I hear that a lot, that nostalgia of something that made them feel good, a piece of furniture. Sometimes it's just something that really speaks to you.
0: And that's really fun. We have a lot of fun at my store. And that was Tanya McNear, the owner of Bad Magic Company, a vintage shop in South Park. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego will reopen their La Jolla campus on Saturday. It follows major renovations that began in 2018. KPBS Arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans has this preview of the new museum and its first special exhibition.
4: Even the museum's architecture is a work of art at a time when the arts feel essential. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria spoke in front of the museum this week.
5: San Diegans are emerging from a very dark time in our history to see these incredible beacons, not just of new buildings, but of new hope. And a real testament to the fact that we are a big, global city capable of doing amazing, incredible things.
4: The New York-based firm Seldorf Architects quadrupled the gallery space by excavating underground and even moving a large tree on the property. They also transformed the historic but underused Sherwood Auditorium. Catherine Kanjo is the museum's director and CEO.
2: Almost 50% of our space, you know, was
4: dedicated, was dedicated to performance, which was an our main line of business, if you
3: will. You know, we're, we're an art museum with showing uh, visual art objects. So we, we made the decision to uh, transform the auditorium into gallery spaces.
4: With 40,000 square feet of gallery space, they now have plenty of room to show their extensive collection. MCASD is committed to the art of our time, including works by artists in our region. One striking, airy new gallery holds an impressive amount of California light and space artists. That's a movement of painters and sculptors that spans the 1950s through the 1970s. There's Craig Kaufman, Mary Course, Dwayne Valentine, and San Diegan Robert Irwin, to name a few. Irwin was a leader in the movement and has a significant amount of work on view. His beloved site-specific 1997 work, One Degree, Two Degrees, Three Degrees, Four Degrees, is back on view. It cuts several squares into and all the way through the windows overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The works on display show a commitment to regional artists, not just Irwin or other nationally recognized names like John Baldessari, but also works by Andrea Chung, by Tijuana-born Solomon Huerta, and dozens more. It's all part of a world-class collection with works by Mark Rothko, Andy Warhol, Ellsworth Kelly, and a new acquisition by Yayoi Kusama.
3: One of the first pieces the public is going to see when they walk into the building is, is a new gift. It is a outsized gourd, a pumpkin, by the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama. So it's reflective stainless steel, and it's polka dotted with in kind of pastel hues. And it's, it greets the visitor as soon as you walk in the front door.
4: The first special exhibition to be installed is an extensive survey of the 1960s work of Nikki de Saint-Fal. The French-American artist lived in San Diego for about a decade until her death in 2002. San Diegans know her for her vibrant sculptures like the Nikki Gator in Balboa Park or Queen Caliphia's Magic Circle in Escondido. But the exhibition shows another side of the artist's repertoire. In the 60s, she was making radical and feminist work, working with found objects, constructing large-scale sculptures that depict the female body, and her shooting paintings. To make these, Semphal would first conceal bags of paint in her works and coat everything with white plaster. She and others would um, shoot at these constructions with a, uh, a borrowed 22 caliber rifle, um, and then the pigment would explode dramatically and drip and splatter. That was Jill Dossie, co-curator of the exhibition. She says that the amount of experimentation in Senfall's work was groundbreaking. Doing these things that women five to 10 years later in the context of the feminist movement, particularly in the United States do. And she's, she's working, you know, in this masculine context and arriving at many of the same ideas. And it's just incredible how ahead of her time she is.
0: And that was reporting from KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans. The Museum of Contemporary Arts grand opening in La Jolla is Saturday with free admission all weekend. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at KPBS.org. This podcast is produced by KPBS senior radio producer Brooke Ruth and me, Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.